Thanks again for joining us this morning. If we've never met, my name is Corey, and I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. And this is, if this is your first time, it's your first time in a long time. Uh, we are in the midst of a series we're calling What If the Church Looked More Like Jesus? And so this is week four, so if you missed a week uh, or you missed a few weeks or it's your first time, you can always go back and listen to that wherever you get your podcast or you can, li- or you can watch it uh, on YouTube to catch up. But we've been digging into some tension uh, in this series. And so I, I have three questions just to start off today. And so a couple of them you've heard already. And then one of them is going to be going to lead us into our conversation we're having today. The first question is, what tension do you feel between the church and culture? I think if you don't feel tension between the church and culture or just tension in culture, you live under a rock, right? Like we get that. There's, there's tension there. There's all kinds of things going on and happening that we need to figure out where we are. If you're a Jesus follower, or even if you're not a Jesus follower, where do you fall on certain issues and topics? And when I was younger, maybe when you were younger, some of that defining line was a little bit more just sin-based. Like, okay, maybe the world does this, but I do this, right? There was, and there was kind of a clear delineation. And now that spectrum has become more broad. There's differences of opinion, there's differences even in churches about where we should fall on different ideologies and movements and all that kind of stuff. And so we feel this tension, and one of the things that is wrong, when you feel tension, if if you just ignore it, it never gets better, right? If you just pretend that it doesn't exist, and you just go about your day, and you just leave it alone, it just gets more and more and more and more, and then all of a sudden something blows up. And so part of the conversation we've been trying to have is if we feel this tension, then what do we do with it? And I've been, I shared a few statistics. I'm not going to share them again today. I have a different, different statistic I'll share later. But the trend has been that people trust the church or trust Christians or trust the church as an organization less and less and less. So then our second question is this, how can the church impact the tension we feel? Is it right, this is, a, this is a difficult question, right? Is it right that people feel that tension with the church if they're not followers of Jesus? Sometimes, I think yes, right? There are certain topics and things that we should fall a certain place on as Christ followers compared to where other people who aren't Christ followers are going to fall on that. But should there be a distrust? Should there be a skepticism? of people, or should they see us as just genuine people who maybe we disagree, but they can actually appreciate the fact that we care about people, and that we love one another, and that we just simply believe things a little bit differently than they do. And the last question I want to ask, and this leads into our conversation we're going to have today, is how do we respond when we fail? And this is a question that I want to ask across a very wide spectrum, how do we respond when we fail, when we fail at this, when we become maybe the impetus for distrust in the church? But also, how do we respond when we fail just in sin? What do we do with that? And how does the way that we interact with one another on that topic speak to the people that are outside of the church? When they see how we treat each other when we fail or when we struggle, how does that impact their perception of us and whether they would engage in a church environment or they would want to begin a relationship with Jesus if they don't have one? So we're going to start today uh, in Romans chapter 12. Okay, so if you want to turn there in your Bible, if you've got it, you want to turn on your phone. If you want, you can scan the little QR code that's on the back of your next steps card, and that'll take you to our follow along page, which has all the verses, all the notes, um, all the good stuff you'd want there. You can ask a question or submit a prayer request. And as always, we'll have the verses uh, up on the screen for you. So in Romans chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. 
So this is what it says in Romans 12.1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be living, a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Verse 2 goes on to say, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's plan, God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, maybe you've interacted with this verse before, or these verses that we're going to read today. So maybe you've heard them, but I just want to kind of set the stage if you haven't interacted with them before. In verse 1, he makes a pretty interesting declaration. He goes, this is how you are to live. Your life is supposed to be a sacrifice. Now, they knew sacrifice as something you killed. So for him saying that you're supposed to be a living sacrifice, this is kind of a different way of thinking about it. And he goes, if that's going to be true, you're going to offer your life to God. So he says, that's what we're called to do. And then he says in verse 2, don't copy the behavior or customs of the world. So this living sacrifice that he's calling us to is different than what you're going to see lived out in the world. There's the tension, right? That's the tension we still feel today. We're called to be living sacrifices that have offered our lives to God. The culture is not going to make that same claim. And so if that's true, then there's going to be a little bit of tension there that's never, never going to go away. He says, but let God transform you. By changing the way you think. Now, this is also very interesting to me because we don't, let me say that, I don't process this this way all the time. When we're talking about spiritual matters, we're talking about this kind of idea. We don't always go to our minds. But he says, if you offer your body as a living sacrifice, it's it's literally going to change the way you think and the way that you interact with the world around you. And so he says, let that transformation happen. Let it change the way you think. And then you will know God's will for you. That's one of the topics that, that, People like me, pastors and other spiritual leaders, we get questions on a lot. How do I know God's will for me? Right? How do I know what's right and wrong? How do I make a decision? This is kind of the blueprint for how to do that, right? Offer your body as living sacrifice. Offer your life to Jesus. Live for Jesus, and his will will become known to you. Now, that's not very tangible, right? It's not like just open a book. Here's what God's will is, right? It's like you have to actually live in it and kind of let him guide you. But this is, this is all part of this conversation and some of the tension that we still feel today. And the, ver- the, wor- the, sorry, the word I want to focus in on in verse 2 is transform. Now, here's what I know about us, right? We love a good transformation story. Think about all the shows, all the TV shows, like reality shows that have to do with transformation, Right? There's shows where they do, uh, where it's weight loss goals, right? So the person, they have, you know, people that want to lose weight, and so there's a competition, and so at the end, they lose all this weight, and there's this transformation, and they look completely different maybe than they were before. Or there's the one, uh, what was it, Extreme Home Makeover? Is that the one where they say, move that bus, right? That was that one, okay? So like you start with somebody who doesn't necessarily have the money to redo their whole home, or they need a certain thing or whatever, and so people show up, and they... They dig in and they go and there's a bunch of volunteers and they do the work. And at the end, you get, to the, you get to see the house and there's this incredible transformation that's happened, right? And we love to watch that. It's a good thing. It's fun to see. And the people that are successful, um, if, it, if it relies on them to be able to lose the weight or whatever they're going to do, it's great to see that success story. And the reason that we love that is because the best transformations bring hope to a hopeless situation. When that happens, and those moments, they're successful. Someone wins the weight loss challenge, right? 
they thought at the beginning, maybe they felt hopeless. They thought, I'm, I've been stuck in this. I'm not going to be able to get out of this. This is just who I am. And then they're able to accomplish something amazing. And now all of a sudden they have this renewed sense of hope in their life. With the house, someone feels like I'm stuck here, right? I can't afford anything else. This is run down. I can't do anything about it. They come in, they fix it. And all of a sudden they've got this beautiful home. And all of a sudden, because of that, their spirits are completely lifted. And now they are hopeful moving forward. And in those moments, it's great because there's hope that happens. And I think the same kind of thing happens in this transformation that God is talking about. When we decide to hand our lives over to him, before that decision is made, things are pretty hopeless. Like even if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and I'm saying this, this is going to sound a little bit like frustrating to you, but like let's just go there for a minute. Even if the end result of life is that there's nothing left, right? You live on this earth for 80 years, and then you pass on, and there's literally nothing after. That's a pretty hopeless place. Like, there's nothing else to live for. And so you get through, you have a good time, and then we're done. That still seems a little bit hopeless to me. Whereas if God is real and Jesus was, is truly who we believe he was and we can worship him and we look forward to that and we look forward to not just living eternally for him but that our work here on earth, our life on earth is not just useless and we get to work towards that and build the kingdom of God and then celebrate that one day. Like that's, that's that transformation at the end. You start in a place that's hopeless and frustrating and you don't know what to do with it but then because of Jesus then we have this hopefulness that's going to come to fruition. And in that transformation that happens, he gives us the ability to get out of that frustrating, hopeless place and say, through him, then we can have hope in the midst of hopelessness. And that hope takes us to a place where even though we are imperfect, even though we fail, we can still look to Jesus and say, he forgave us and we can celebrate that and know what's coming in the future. No matter what happens in life, we know what he's promised us is going to come true. Let's keep going in verse 3 of Romans 12. It says, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Do not think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Now, we're going to put the same verse up here in verse 3, but I want to change some words to yellow, right? In the center of this verse, this is very important. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Don't think too highly of yourself, right? He goes, do this evaluation. Think about who you are. Think about where you are. Understand the transformation that needs to happen in you. If you assume that there's nothing that needs to happen, then the transformation is never going to go, right? We have to be honest. I thought about it this way as I was processing this conversation, is that at some point we have to recognize that we need help, and we have to be willing to accept that help. And so if we don't do that, we're going to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, and it's going to keep us in the same space even though what we really need to do is have God transform our lives. He goes on in verses 4 and 5. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. So here's the cool thing, right? We all get to be a part of the body. We all have different gifts and, and things that we're given. And then we get to work together 
to be the best body that we can be. And so I would, I would say it this way as we looked at those last couple verses. Integrity and personal responsibility are attributes of the body of Christ. Now, why do I say integrity? He said, right, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. Make sure you understand the issues you have. Let me give you this example. Um, in a past housing market where things weren't nuts, you would usually get home inspections, right? Today, those kind of go out the window. You're like, just give me a house, and if I win the bet, I'm just going to take it, okay? But years ago, we did these home inspections. You would want the home inspector to have integrity, You would want them, if they're coming into a home that you're going to buy, check the foundation, check for termites, check for all the stuff so that I know what's there. If he just showed up, stood in the driveway, looked at the house and went, yep, good, and walked away, that would be a problem for you because there wasn't an honest evaluation of what's going on. That's what integrity is. It's an honest evaluation. It's understanding the flaws. It's making sure that things are actually the way that they should be, and they have integrity so that we can adjust them if they don't. And then this idea of personal responsibility. I love the way he says in verse 5, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. That means if one of us is struggling, the other ones get to help. Or if one of us is struggling, the other ones feel the struggle. Or if one of us is, is failing, then the other ones come around. You ever notice this when you have to like compensate for like if you have a problem in one leg, but then the other leg starts to hurt just because it's trying to compensate? Or you have a problem with your leg and your back starts to hurt? You know what I mean? Like that compensation starts to get to the rest of your body, even though the problem is in this leg or this foot. The same thing is true in the body of Christ. That we would have this personal responsibility to understand, to evaluate who we are, to understand the reality of who we are, and then to work together as a body to be Christ's body because we have these different roles to play. In verse 6, he goes on, he says, In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. Verses 7 and 8. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach them well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Verses 9 and 10. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. And love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Now, if you've, if you've been with us over the summer, right? If you've been with us for a while, we just did this long study on love. And I find it now, as I've processed that and I go through reading scripture, how often we get instruction on what to do and then the payoff verse is love people. So he gives all this instruction, right? This is what you're supposed to do. If this is your gift, then do this. If this is your gift, then do this. And the best way that all of this is happening and the best way you flesh this out is that you love each other and you continue to love people. And so we know this, right, from our conversation that loving someone means being honest and humble with them. And so we get all these gifts and we get this opportunity, but in, in, verse, in verse 9, I love it, right? It says, don't just pretend to love them. Have you ever done that? I'm going to pretend to care right now. Like, yeah, I don't want to admit that, but like that happens sometimes, right? Don't just pretend to love them. Really love them. What does that mean? It means being honest. It means being honest with yourself. It means being honest with them. And then it also means being humble. Listen, we can get tempted into doing all the things. 
Instead of doing what God has gifted us to do or given us the responsibility to do and allowing other people to do what they need to do. And sometimes that takes humility because we have to look at somebody else and say, you're going to do this better than I am. I need you and you need me. That's a humble place to be. It can be a challenge to not to say, I need somebody else or I, I am better when somebody else is involved in this conversation. But if we understand it as a body, understand the church as a body, then we need all those other pieces. So all of this creates a little bit of tension because we're not supposed to be like the world. We're supposed to love each other and we have different gifts and people just working together, right? That can create tension. And then in James, things get a little bit deeper into a space that maybe many of us have a struggle going to. In James chapter 5, we're going to read verses 16 to 18. He says this, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. He's on in seventeen eighteen. Elijah was a human as we are. Yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. Now, James says this, and he starts off with this conversation, right? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. So there's two pieces to this. He says, if you fail, confess it. Tell it to somebody. Be honest about it. Have an evaluation of yourself that is true. And then that there would be people, the other body of believers, that would come around and pray for you. So there's this confession, but it's not just confession for confession's sake. It's confession so that we can be prayed for and we can be, people can come around us and support us and help us as the body of Jesus. And then he goes on and gives us this example, right? He talks about Elijah. Elijah was like top tier. If you were going to be like someone to this audience, Elijah was tops, okay? He was a hero of the faith. People looked up to him. This was a good person to be compared to. He says he was just human, just like us. But, he says, because he was honest and did these evaluations and, and was honest with other people, he says when, that, when he prayed, he didn't have anything hindering his prayers. He wasn't hiding sin. He wasn't continuing to sin without confessing. He wasn't um, harboring that inside of him. He just let it out. He confessed it. He lived in community with other people. And because of that, when he prayed, amazing things started to happen. Listen, this is, this is a difficult space. And this is kind of where I want to get to as we have a conversa- our conversation today. That confessing sin to other people is never fun. It's not fun to show up and have a conversation with somebody and go, I messed up, or I, I offended you, or I did something that you need to know about, right? That's not the conversation we need to have. And in that moment, we have to be honest and we have to be humble. We have to evaluate ourselves correctly. But the great thing is we're not just a part of the body on our own. And when we do that, we can have people come around us and, have, and pray for us and help us. And the body helps us compensate in that moment even though we failed. This is what I want us to understand. You can't go deep with everyone, but you have to go deep with someone. I've read different articles and had different conversations about this idea of there's like a certain amount of people that you can actually have a deep relationship with you. 
Um, I've actually read it this way. Like, you know, you get a power strip. Let's just say you've got a power strip that's got like 10 plugs on it, right? And you have an area in your house where you have to plug all the things in. In my house, it's the place where all the kids' tablets and electronics plug in. So we have to like figure out how many plugs we need and try and get them all situated there. Well, if you run out of plugs, you have to unplug one to plug in another. The same thing can happen with our relationships, like there's a certain level we can go to in our relationships with other people. And then when we get to that space where there's not enough spaces anymore, someone has to move. And that's unfortunate sometimes, right? But it, it's just a fact of life. If you think back married people, if you think back to the people who were in your wedding, I would ask you the question, how many of them do you keep up with on a daily or weekly basis? My guess is maybe some of them. But there might be a couple that's like, I, you know, I connect with them every month or maybe even once a year. Right? Life just happens and we continue to go on. So we can't just go this deep with everyone. It's not like when we confess sin to, to somebody, it has to be like everybody, right? You just have to declare it to everybody. But there needs to be people that we are in community with that we can go deep with and we can have those deep conversations. And when we fail, we can have that conversation and confess it. And that that person would then pray for us. See, if we don't build that, if we don't connect in that community... We're just going to continue to sin. We're going to continue to hide it. It's going to continue to eat away at us. And what James says is it's going to hinder the prayers that we have because we've allowed sin to continue to live in our life. Another reason that this gets difficult is because confession means vulnerability. Like you actually have to realize or have somebody else realize that you have something that's wrong with you. And that's not a fun place to be. I, I think guys struggle with this more than women. I definitely do. I am not good at being vulnerable. I don't like being vulnerable. And this is why. Because sometimes vulnerability is perceived as weakness. I've had this conversation with other people. Like if, I, if I'm vulnerable or you're vulnerable or something like that, you're going to think a, a certain thing about whether I can lead well or whether you can do your job well or you can do this well, right? That You show that vulnerability and all of a sudden, we, we like to, in our sinful minds, to focus on the vulnerability or focus on the thing we just shared that was wrong. And so we get to this space where it's difficult to be vulnerable, and sometimes it can be seen as weakness. But here's the thing I want us to understand. It is weakness, but that's a good thing. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9. This is what he says. He says, three different times... I beg the Lord to take it away. He's talking about this ailment, this thorn in his flesh that he has. We don't know exactly what it was. He doesn't quite explain it, but he says God gave it to him, and then he prayed for it to be given away. And then he says, each time God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And Paul says, so now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. Here's the thing, right? It is weakness. Vulnerability is weakness sometimes. When you're vulnerable with someone, you don't show your strength. That's not what vulnerability is. When you're vulnerable with someone, you show a weakness. And yet what Paul says is that's exactly what we have to do. When we recognize and we show our weakness, we just show the fact that we are human. And we recognize the fact, again, we do need help. We make an honest evaluation of ourselves and go, this is my weakness. I need to share it with you because I need you to pray for me so that we can be the body of believers together and we can be stronger because we're working together and I'm not isolating myself. And the way I would want us to understand this is that our weakness is the vehicle for God's power and grace. 
Listen, if we go through life and we just say, I never need any help from anyone, first of all, it's not a very good way to live, right? Because we're not being honest. But here's the other thing. You don't need Jesus then. If everybody's just good and no one needs help with anything and you're just a pro and everything's good and you can live life and your moral standards are great and you just, you just don't need anybody else, like why would you ever need Jesus? But when we do recognize this and we do recognize that we need help and we do recognize that if what I think is true, if I'm wrong, I got problems because I can't fix it because I'm not God. So when we evaluate our weakness and we're honest about it, that's the vehicle for God's power and grace to show up in our lives and then that it would also be clear to other people. And so I have three things I want to say about this today as we kind of put a bow on this conversation, okay? Because I want us to be honest about our weakness. And I think when we're not honest about our weakness, what happens with the tension of, of culture and the outside world, they look at us and they, they just see people who just think they're better than everybody because we don't recognize weakness. And they see people that aren't honest about themselves and they don't make honest evaluations about themselves. And so how do we do that? What does that look like? I would say the first thing is that pride is a roadblock to true self-evaluation. When we're prideful, we see ourselves better than we ought to. We think we don't need others. We think we can do it on our own. This is a big deal. It's hard to ask for help. I've told you this before. I hate asking for help in stores. I will spend an hour trying to find it myself before I will go ask somebody. Because I think I could figure it out. Like, all I have to do is walk through the aisles. How dumb could I be to not find this thing? And I usually can't. So then I end up wasting my time, and, I, and then I find it faster because I asked somebody, right? That's a prideful moment where I'm not evaluating myself clearly and going, I don't know the layout of this store. I clearly don't go grocery shopping enough, so I need to ask somebody. Or I just order it on Amazon and leave the store instead of trying to find it. I think I've done that once or twice. But I'm not honest with myself. So that's a roadblock to true self-evaluation. I think I can figure it out. I can't. So therefore, I need to set my pride aside. On a greater level, we have to do that even when we fail. We have to set it aside so that we can actually evaluate ourselves and where we are. The second thing is this, and this isn't just us. This is to respond to others. Our response to the failure of others will encourage honesty or motivate seclusion. So now let's think about this in the reverse role. I've talked a lot about us confessing to other people. What if someone confesses to you? How do you respond in that moment? When I was a student pastor, I spent so much time having conversations with students and with parents about this interaction. Because if a child shows up, a kid, a teenager, whatever, shows up to a parent, and they, they openly and honestly offer that they've screwed up, Right? What I preach to parents is, do not freak out. <laughs> Be real in that moment. Hear them. Because if you freak out, they're not going to want to do that again later. And the thing I preached to the kids was, especially as I had kids, I said, if my kids come to me, or, or you as a student come to me and say, I'm going to offer this information to you, and I'm going to confess it, and I am repentant of it, and I want to get better at it. I said, if that's the conversation we have, rather than I need to hear something about this and then go find out and try and track you down and you lie about it, like, if, if those two are the difference in the interactions, I said, the first one is going to go so much better for you. 
Because if you come and you are just honest about it, that's a way different conversation than if I need to find it out myself. I say the same thing to parents. And so when, when somebody comes to us and they fail, they, they, they tell us that and they ask for prayer. Our response is either going to cause them to be more honest the next time or it's going to motivate them to seclude themselves. I remember very clearly a time this happened to a friend of mine. He and I, at the same time, were interns in student ministry uh, in college. And so in his context, we would co- co- you know, communicate back and forth. We knew that we were going to be doing the same job at the same time. And so at one point, he called me or texted me. I don't remember how we communicated then. But the, he had been on the job for like one day or a week. It was, it was a very small amount of time. And he had, he had failed. He had sinned. And what he did was he took that and he went to the leadership uh, in his position at that moment. He said, listen, this is what I did. Uh, He was alone with it, so no one else was involved. He said, this is what I did. I am repentant of it. It was literally the next day. So this day it happens. The next day he goes to leadership and has this conversation. He goes, this is what happened. This is what I did. I'm sorry for it. I want to get better, blah, 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 right? Within two hours, he was fired. What do you think that told me? Don't tell people you messed up. And I know that there are times when there are certain sins, especially in a leadership position, that disqualify you. That is absolutely the case. But at times, we teach people, especially if it's a cancel culture thing, like if you screw up, we're just going to remove you. And I think too many times there are those opportunities where somebody shows up and has a conversation and willfully repents and confesses sin, and we look at them and we say, I'm going to cut you off instead of help you get better. And our response is either going to encourage that honesty or, or motivate seclusion. And I know that there are people in this context who have felt that way in certain areas. You know when you feel safe with a leader and you can go be honest with them or you can't. Because you feel like if you are honest, if you're vulnerable with them, they're going to respond in a negative way, and they're going to take you out of whatever position you're in. Listen, I I think that the church should be the safest place to be failures. Because we are built, our faith is built on that failure. Like Jesus recognized that and said, I'm going to be willing to come and die for that failure. So the rest of you should forgive one another because I've already forgiven it. And I get it, right? I, I get it. There are sins that remove you from leadership position. There are sins that cause you to have to take a step back. Or there are sins or situations where there's consequences that need to happen for that. But I'm saying too many times we are just unwilling to confess and, and pray for one another and build that kind of community. And that's what Scripture calls us to. The third thing I would say is this, that our denial of our weakness actually robs grace and peace from one another. Because here's what happens, right? If you... If you step up and you're willing to say, I have a weakness here, right? I struggle with this. Here's how I have to figure this out, right? Somebody else in the room is going to go, oh, good. I'm not the only one. They struggle with that too. I'm not on an island by myself. And then they can come and they can say, hey, I, I struggle with that. Can we, can we have a conversation? Right? When we, when we just hide all that weakness, We rob that grace and that peace from other people who can see Jesus through that situation, and you might be able to help them too. If if we're just a church, and I mean this at GFC, I mean this in Great Church, if we're just a church that just has no problems, we're just liars. Like we, We should be honest in those moments and say, 
I need your help. I need your prayers. I need to confess something. I need you to help and strengthen me. And I believe this is the case, that when, the out, when those outside the church see our arrogance, when we're unwilling to confess and forgive. They see our arrogance when we're unwilling to for- confess and forgive. If what they see is people that just point out problems and we're not willing to be there and we're not willing to confess and we're not willing to forgive, why would they want to be a part of it? I said I, I, said I was going to share with you one more statistic. I just grabbed a screenshot of the top of a statistic that was much bigger. Um, and it was about Gen Z. So Gen Z is the generation that's after me. Okay. So many of our kids downstairs, there's kind of a crossover going into the next generation, but like our teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, they're all Gen Z. And they did a survey about what they would need to see in someone else in order to consider following Jesus, right? If someone was going to share the gospel with them, What would they need to see in that person that would maybe drive them to a place where they would be willing to listen? And the very top of the, here we go, put it up on there. The very top of it was listens without judgment. That was the very top thing. There's like 20 things on this list, and they could check all that applied. But this one mattered the most. And look, non-Christian Gen Z, 72% said if people would just listen to me without judging me, that would make me want to listen to them. That's what people hear when they hear Christian. They hear judgmental. And if we can't share and be honest and open with one another in our context as people who believe and follow the same God, people outside of that context are never going to be able to find their way in. Because if we're just judgmental of them, they're not going to want to be here. There's no room for them. And we should see that we can listen without judgment. I've said over and over again, It doesn't mean that we just overlook the sin. It just means we have a conversation from the same place of, I once was there too, and I understand what it's like to be where you are. It's not a, I never would be. It's an, I once was. And so here's the last thing I want us to walk away with today. If the church looked more like Jesus, we would see the severity of our sin, but boast in the victory of the cross. Like, we would see how bad it was. It was so bad that Jesus had to die for it. That's how bad sin was. This isn't to overlook sin. It's not to to minimize it. It's to say, Jesus died for it. That's how bad it was. But at the same time, because he died for it, we have victory in the cross. Sin lives the best in darkness. When no one else knows about it is when sin can continue to go on and on and on and on. The second we have conversations about it and open up about it and be honest about our weakness and have people that can pray with us, that's where sin starts to die. So if we want sin to, like, get out of our life, start telling people about it. And I don't, again, not stand on street corners, hey, listen, this is what my sin is, right? Not being silly, but having the conversation with the people that we're closest with to say, will you help me? Will you pray for me? And they can check back in and go, how would your week go, right? How was your conversation with that? How did you do in this area? That's when things start to go. And that honesty is going to lead to a place where people who aren't followers of Jesus will see that kind of honest, open communication and that willingness to love and forgive rather than judge. And it's something that they would want to be a part of. Listen, we we should be really good at this. I want us to be really good at this. That we would be honest with one another. That we would be vulnerable at times. We would say, I need you to pray for me. 
And that when that happens, when somebody comes to us and they confess something or they ask for that prayer, that we would respond in a way that motivates honesty over and over and over again, especially with our kids, so that they're honest with us. And that we would be a place that feels safe to say, I don't have it all together, I'm not perfect, and I need the rest of the body of Jesus to come around me. I'll say this. I'll just say this for me. If you come and open up honestly to me, I will not freak out at you. I promise. I've said that to my kids. I've said that to my students in the past. I've said that to other Just come talk to me. I promise I won't freak out. But I want all of us to have that conversation with one another so that we can be a place where, where that weakness is opened up to and sin doesn't continue to live. Let's be a church that is about forgiveness and not judgment. Let's pray. God, we know that each of us are not perfect, and we know that you know that too. And yet you decided, as bad as our sin was, that you would come and and die to pay for it. And so I ask that we would be willing to forgive the sins that you already forgave, that we would be a church and that we would build relationships where the weakness that we clearly have even though we want to hide it, is shown in vulnerability so that your grace and your power can flow through it. And that we would be able to connect with others even in our weakness to be able to help them and help them process it and help them get better, especially if they're in a place that needs help. And I pray that our church would be one of the safest places to be imperfect because we love one another and we help one another and we forgive one another. I pray that that overflowing of forgiveness would also go to those in our community, and that it would be so true in our relationships in this body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.